Well, good morning, church. Man, it's so good to be with you. Can we give uh, Beck and Tim a big hand for leading us in worship? So they uh, hail all the way from Pikeville and from New Beginnings Church, uh, which is happening in Pikeville. Some great and cool and amazing things are happening there. God's moving in that church. And Pastor Jared, I, I met him, and he is a great guy. And so you are, you are so blessed to have him as your pastor. And the church is just doing some really crazy and great things in that community, they have a boxing club, and uh, I love that, and I'm thinking about joining. And um, so there's a boxing club in Pikeville that they started as a ministry. There's a coffee house and a thrift store, so many different things out in the community. I love that. And so thank you guys so much, uh, Beck and Tim, for leading us in worship this morning, and uh, I was blessed, and it was just good to have you with us. And so we want to welcome you back to week three of this series that we're in called Take Back Your Life. And uh, in this whole series, what we're doing is we're focusing on What's holding us back so that we can take back our life and become God's best version of ourselves? And uh, God has a best version for each and every one of you. And so often we miss that because we get caught up in all the circumstances, all the things that are going on in our lives. And so we want to take back our lives. And so that's kind of where we're at. That's where we're at in the series. And today we're jumping in the book of Mark. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, if you're watching online, if you got, grab your Bibles, uh, use the Bible app, whatever you've got to uh, go ahead and start finding your way to Mark chapter 10. Um, that's where we're going to be hanging out today. And, uh, and the gospel of Mark really is a short, um, it's a short action-packed uh, book. And, uh, and so the gospel, the writer uh, Mark, he, he packs it all in there. It's the account of the life and mission of Jesus. And, uh, and it was written, like I said, by John Mark, and, uh, who is believed, though, to have gotten all of his information from Peter. And, uh, and I love Peter. We've talked about Peter. Peter's kind of the hothead of the 12 disciples. Like, he always just kind of spoke what was on his mind. He never thought before he talked. And uh, we looked at Peter uh, just a few weeks ago. And so uh, the book of Mark kind of resembles Peter's life. It's, it's a fast-moving book. Um, it's full of activity. And it just reminds us of Peter. And there's also this running theme that's going on through the book of Mark. And, and the running theme is of the goodness of God. We just sang about that, about the goodness of God. And, and remember, uh, there's this theme, and it kind of matches Peter's story. Because if you remember Peter's backstory, uh, the big thing that we often remember Peter doing is he threw Jesus under the bus, right? At the greatest point of need, he throws Jesus under the bus by fervently denying that he knew who Jesus was. And, uh, and so Peter knew firsthand I mean, he knew firsthand, of all the disciples, he knew firsthand that he couldn't take back his own life by himself, but that he needed the grace of Jesus to get there. And so let's read Mark chapter 10, and we're going to begin in verse 46 this morning. And, uh, and let's just read verses 46 through 48. And here we see, then uh, they came, Jesus and the disciples, they came to Jericho, and as Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So let me, let me just set this up for you, what's going on. Uh, Mark's gospel uh, has two themes, really, two basic themes that are woven throughout the gospel. The first half of the book 
uh, is the theme of the compassion of Christ, and he focuses on the compassion of Christ. And the second half of Mark is all about the passion of Christ. So the first half, the compassion of Christ. The second half, the compassion, the passion of Christ. And I want you to remember a few weeks ago, we talked about that word compassion. And we talked about what it meant in the original language. And we talked about compassion means to love from the gut. Remember? We talked about the bowels. We talked about that, that Jesus had compassion on the crowd. And he loved them from his gut, like from his deepest inner parts. And so the entire beginning of Mark's gospel is all about this from the gut kind of love or kind of compassion that Jesus had on those who were sick or those who were wounded or those who were worried or those who were powerless, that he loved them from the gut. And so Mark really uh, displays that or puts this compassion on display in the first 10 chapters of the book of Mark. And then the second half of the book of of the gospel of Mark is all about the passion of Christ. It's all about the passion. And in chapter 10, we see Mark kind of pivoting. He's kind of pivoting from, from this idea of compassion and, and kind of showing that off to this idea of passion. And when we talk about passion, like we're not talking about, uh, the, we're not talking about the emotion. We're not talking about the emotion we feel. Uh, we're not talking about how you feel after you catch that big fish. And we're not talking about how you feel when that Amazon package that you've been waiting on finally shows up on your front door. See, in, in biblical literature, and, and as the Bible is written, the passion of Christ, it means something specific. And so the passion of Christ means that Jesus was unwavering about the cross, that he was determined, that he knew exactly what his mission was, that Jesus knew exactly where he was going, that he knew what Easter meant. He knew what Easter meant for him. He knew that Easter was going to change everything for us. He knew that he was heading to his own death, and he was determined to be there. And so Jesus is like, this is my purpose. This is what, my, what I'm passionate about. It is, it's, what, uh, it's worth it. It's worth it for me to lay down my life so that you and I might have our lives. And so So Mark's turning the corner, and he's beginning to focus on the passion of Christ. He's beginning to focus on Jesus' journey to the cross, the events that took place on the cross, and the events that took place after the cross. And so here we are with Mark in chapter 10, and we're turning the corner, and, and Jesus and his disciples, they're on their way to Jerusalem, and he's passing through Jericho, and it's his very last pit stop along the way. And I don't know about you, but as I thought about this, if I knew, if I knew that I was heading to my death, if I knew that I was going to be murdered for something that I didn't do, if I knew how painful and how horrific and how humiliating the next few days were going to be, I might stop, right, for a steak dinner. Like I might stop and pause for a minute. I might stop and catch my breath. But Jesus, he doesn't do that. He doesn't stay the night. He doesn't uh, carve out some me time for him. No, he just fixates on the cross. He focuses on what's ahead. And so as he's passing through the town, we see in the scripture, as Mark tells the story, that a crowd begins to form around him. This wasn't anything new. Like crowds always were 
forming around Jesus. People had heard about him. People had seen him. People uh, had heard about the things that he had done, and they just wanted to be around him and see what he does. And so in Jericho, the crowd gathers around him, not necessarily because they believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They just crowd around him because they want to see what Jesus is going to do. Maybe he'll perform a miracle. Like maybe he'll do that water into wine thing again, or maybe he'll, 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 uh, he'll heal someone in front of us, and so they just want to see. And so they've come, and they're watching, and they want to see what he's going to do, and as the crowd forms, we see in the story that there's this guy, and he's sitting way behind the crowd. He's sitting uh, in the back, maybe sitting on a curb. There's this blind guy, and his name is Bartimaeus, and he's sitting there like he does probably every day, begging for help. We don't know how long Bartimaeus has been blind. We don't know much about him, but we know that he's way in the back and everyone's ignoring him and Jesus is coming in. And Bartimaeus, is, he's not a part of the crowd and here's why. He's not a part of the crowd because he's blind. And in the first century, if you had this ongoing medical issue, if you had a disease that was incurable, it was presumed that there was something wrong with you beyond your illness, that, that you had some unconfessed sin in your life. Like if you read the Gospel of John, the disciples walk by a guy and they say, Jesus, what's wrong with him? Is it something that he did or is it something that his parents did? Because here's the deal, that if you had this sickness about you, if you were blind or lame or had leprosy or whatever, that you were an outcast because everyone believed that you were hiding something. Everyone believed that you had this unconfessed sin. And so Bartimaeus is ostracized from the community. And while everyone else is crowding around Jesus and seeing what miracles he could do, there's the blind guy sitting on the curb. Nobody's saying, hey, let's see if Jesus can heal the blind guy. Nobody's even thinking about him because he's a nobody. And, and he's just sitting there. And he's not engaged in what's going on. But he hears. Obviously, he's blind, so he can't see. But he hears that Jesus is coming down the street. People are talking, and he hears the people saying, oh, look, here comes Jesus of Nazareth. That's the rabbi that everyone's been talking about. Like, they say that when he preaches, that, that he's so good that you're not even tempted to troll on Facebook. You don't even get up and go to the bathroom because he is so good at what he says and does. And Bartimaeus hears that Jesus is passing by. And against all cultural rules against everything that is okay and, 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 and all right to do in culture, Bartimaeus begins to holler out. Bartimaeus begins to yell, Jesus, Jesus, son of David, would you have mercy on me? Now, that's an important part in this passage. Like he's not just saying, hey, Jesus, come here. He gives Jesus some specific titles. He says, Jesus, son of David. And so because the fact that Bartimaeus calls Jesus the son of David meant that Bartimaeus knew more than everyone else in the crowd. Because when he gives him the title son of David, Bartimaeus believed that Jesus was actually the Messiah. He's saying, I know I know the prophecies, I, I know the backstories from Torah, uh, and I believe, 
I believe, Jesus, that you are the Son of God. You're exactly who you've been telling everyone that you are. In other words, here's what Bart's saying. He's saying, Jesus, I believe that you are the only one that can help me take my life back. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now, it's also interesting, and I want you to remember that while these may not have been Jesus followers, the crowd was a religious crowd. Like, they went to temple. They knew the, Bi- the, the Old Testament. They knew Torah. And they're a religious crowd, but they don't necessarily believe in Jesus, but they're definitely, uh, they know the Ten Commandments. They know what's going on. And, and it's interesting to me that as they're this religious crowd, uh, you'd, think, you'd think that they'd want to help Bart out, right? Like you'd think that they want to help this blind guy get to know Jesus, that maybe they would help him up off the curb. Maybe they would lead him. Maybe they like the crowd would separate and they would lead him to be near Jesus because he's yelling out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And, and you would think they'd want to, being this religious crowd, help him out, but they don't. Instead, the passage says that the crowd does what? The crowd rebukes him. They, they rebuke him. Now, now, the word rebuke, too, is another word that in the original language doesn't really translate well into English. And, and so rebuke is really, there's more weight to it than what the English word rebuke gives to it. Uh, it literally means to command with the implication of a threat. So in other words, the crowd is threatening Bartimaeus. And, and, and you know, if you're a mom and a dad or an aunt or an uncle or a grandma or a grandpa, then you know what it means to rebuke. Like you've done it. Rebuking looks a lot like this. Like you're driving to church, and maybe this happened this morning, and your kids are in the back seat, right? And they are fighting and fussing, and you tell them to be quiet. And they keep fighting, right? Like they keep fighting over this invisible line that they've drawn down the middle of the car. And one of them's crossed the line and they're arguing and they're yelling. And finally, you've had enough and you angle your rear view mirror just perfect, right? And you look at them with that eye that will just knock someone out. And you say these words, if you all don't shut up, I'm going to shut you up, right? Or you say something like, If you all don't quit fussing, I'm going to give you something to fuss about. I mean, right, you've all rebuked your children at some point or another, and you know what it sounds like because you've done it. You've been there. And, and, well, maybe not those of you that are committed Christians that still read the the old King James Version. You guys are way beyond that. And, uh, and, and, uh, but, But those of us who still struggle with sin and those of us who still struggle with patience, you know what it means to rebuke. It's strong language. And that is what the crowd is doing to Bart here. He's crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd's looking at him and they're like, if you don't shut up, we're going to shut you up. They're threatening him. And I thought about, you know, in 2008, I was planning a church near Disney World. And, and things were going pretty good and, until they weren't. And, and I tell people that church planning is the most exciting and yet the most challenging time of my life that I have ever been in. 
And, and in late 2008, as we were planning this church, my marriage began to fall apart. And, and I didn't cheat on my wife, and, and I didn't do anything wrong, but my wife made some poor decisions. And she decided that she didn't love me anymore, and she left me and my daughter. And when I began to sense what was happening, as I began to sense what was going on, I immediately stepped down as the pastor, and I began to focus on my marriage, but it was just too little too late. And I became the talk of the town. It was a small town, kind of like Prestonsburg, and I became the talk of the town, and in good religious people were saying, oh, that's the guy who used to pastor that church until his wife left him. And many of my colleagues even stopped talking to me, and pa pastors that I thought had my back suddenly just disappeared and vanished. And I was told time and time again that I would never be a pastor again because my wife left me. And I hadn't done anything wrong. It wasn't my choice, but a divorce was a divorce. And that disqualified me. And I really struggled with that. And so I continued to do ministry. I continued to lead worship. I continued to work with students for the next seven years. And, and I often would think about stepping back into the role of being a pastor. But then I would just hear those voices over and over again in my head. And they would sit and they would just say, you can't do that. You're not good enough. And so I would just go and sit back on the curb in the back of the crowd and let me just tell you, anyone who tells you that you're not qualified or anyone tells you that your past disqualified you is speaking words of death into your life. And it's a lie. It's not from God. It's a lie. And I wish I had been more like Bartimaeus. I really do. I wish I had been more like Bartimaeus because when the crowd told him to sit down and shut up, you know what he does? Look with me in verse 48. And see what he does. I love it. Here's what he says. He says, many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more. And what did he shout? Son of David, have mercy on me. I mean, don't you love that? I think that's the secret when it comes to taking back your life. That when the world says, I don't know, I don't think you could ever get over that. I don't think that your past will ever allow you to have a future. I don't know. That's when you cry out all the more and you ask God, you beg God, you ask him to reveal himself to you. Just like Bartimaeus, you cried, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on my soul. And I love Jesus' response if you keep reading in verse 49. Just the first half, it says this. First two words, Jesus stopped. Remember the passion of Christ. Remember that he's determined. He's heading to the cross. He's, he's passionate about what he has to do. He's set out. He's on a mission. But here's the deal. Someone needed him. And Mark tells us that Jesus stopped he was going through Jericho. He wasn't just stopping. He wasn't going to stop there. He was just going through the town to get to Jerusalem. But he hears a man say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Mark says that Jesus stopped. And not only did Jesus stop, not only did Jesus allow the interruption to happen, but it says that Jesus called him. It says Jesus stopped and said, call him. 
And remember, again, Jesus is on his way to Easter. It's his last stop. He's on his way to the cross, and he effectively does this. He puts Easter on hold. He puts Easter on hold for one person. He pushes the pause button for one person, one man that no one else would give the time of day for, one man that those good religious people would just ignore him and left him in the back because, oh, he must have unconfessed sin. He's got spiritual cooties. We can't touch him. We got to be away from him. And Jesus puts the pause button on and says, wait a minute. The one man that they tried to shut up and Jesus stops. And I think this is so profound for us. I think if you're sitting there thinking Jesus could never uh, help me, Jesus could never have the time for me, Jesus is too busy for me, Jesus got bigger things, bigger fish to fry than me, I want you to remember what it says in Mark chapter 10 right there in verse 49, Jesus stopped and said, call him. He's like, hang on just a minute. Put the cross on pause for just a second because there's a guy sitting on the curb that needs me. There's a guy that everyone else has ignored that needs me. There's a guy that everyone else has said, you're not good enough. You can't do it. You'll never be that that needs me. You see, listen, church. Jesus will leave the 99 for one. Always. Always. And I mean, anybody that tries to tell you that our God is not loving and is not a loving God is an absolute liar, and they haven't read the Gospels at all, because our God is a kind God. Our God is a personal God. Our God is so loving, and guess what? He sees you right where you are. And I'm sure that there are some of you in this room right now that because of your circumstances, you feel completely invisible. Like you can relate to Bartimaeus sitting on the curb. I mean, Bartimaeus is just sitting over here and he's sitting on the curb and he's blind and he can't see anything, but he hears Jesus. He hears Jesus coming in and he's like, Jesus, son of God, David, have mercy on me. And Jesus comes and says, bring him to me. Bring him to me. And I'm sure that some of you feel just like him and you feel invisible. But let me just tell you, that is not a spiritual reality. Like that may be your circumstantial reality, but that's not a spiritual reality. Because remember last week, things aren't always as we see. And you can't see that the God that breathed the galaxies into existence, the God that breathed the earth into existence, but he's looking at you right now and he's going, right now he's like looking at you and he's going, I'm right here. Like, I'm right here next to you. I got your back. I'm with you. And Jesus, so Jesus stops. And he says, hey, bring him to me. And I love this, because can you imagine how embarrassed the crowd is right now? Like, they have totally ignored him. They probably kicked him along the way. They may have put that sign that says, kick me on his back, and thought it was funny. They think he has the spiritual cooties. And, and here's Jesus. And Jesus, I mean, they're pretending to be so religious and to be so righteous, and they've been shooing this needy guy away, and Jesus calls to him and says, bring Bart to me. Bring him to me. And so they do that. It says that they, uh, that they get Bartimaeus, and he stands before Jesus in verse 40, um, starting in verse 48, the second half, and here's what it says, or the second half of 49. It says, so they called to the blind men, cheer up, they said. A little sarcasm there. Cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. 
throwing his cloak aside. So Bartimaeus is like throwing everything aside and he is leaping to his feet. It says he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. And the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Can you imagine if Jesus walked in front of you right now? Like imagine if he walked right up to you, he looked you right in the eye and he said those words to you. What do you want me to do for you? I wonder what would you say? What would be your response to that question? Because Bart is standing right in front of Jesus, the son of God. And and Jesus says, Bart, what do you need? And I imagine that Bart's standing there, and I don't think he thought for a minute. I know he knew exactly what he needed. And I think that Bart responded quickly. He said, Jesus, I want to see. Like, Jesus, you don't understand. I've been blind for so long. I want to see my son again. I want to see my son rounding third base. And, and, and I lost my sight when he was just a little guy, and he was playing t-ball, and he's become a really good player. And I go to every one of his games, and I'm cheering him on. I have lost my voice cheering him on, but I just want to see him round third base once. I just want to see him score once. Jesus, I want to see. I mean, I, Jesus, I want to see because I'd love to see my wife's smile again. Like it's been 14 years since I saw her smile. And her smile is what grabbed my heart uh, to begin with. I was sitting in the diner. I was sitting at Billy Ray's. I was having brisket, uh, breakfast, biscuits, and gravy. And she walked in the door and, and, her, and, and her eyes and my eyes met and she smiled. And I just, I lost myself to her in the moment that she smiled. Uh, and, and I haven't seen that smile for so long. And I would do anything, Rabbi, I would do anything if I could just see my boy around third base and if I could just see my wife smile again. I just want to see. And in verse 52, Jesus says these words to Bartimaeus. He says, go, your faith has healed you And immediately, he received his sight, and he followed Jesus along the road. I love that passage, part of the passage, too, because you you might think, you might think that Bart getting his sight back was the greatest miracle in this passage. But I think there is a greater miracle happening in this passage. I think it's something completely different than getting his sight back, because look at what Bart did next. He followed Jesus. Not only did he get his sight back, and Jesus said, go. And as we read throughout scriptures, when people are healed, they would go back and they would celebrate and they would be with their family. They would rejoin community, but not Bartimaeus. The greatest part of this story is that him seeing again, it changed the trajectory of Bart's life forever because he followed Jesus. He went from being completely alone on the curb, sitting out on life, to following Jesus along the road. And we don't know how far, right? We don't know how far Bart followed Jesus, but we get the impression. We just get the sense that Bartimaeus followed Jesus all the way to the cross, that he followed him all the way into Jerusalem. He followed him through Palm Sunday when he entered the city on a donkey. He followed him to the trial. He followed him from the trial up the hill to the cross. 
that Bart was there on the hill as Jesus stretched out his arms and said, it is finished. And then he followed him the whole way. Some scholars would even, biblical scholars would even suggest that because Mark calls him Bartimaeus, he doesn't just call him a blind guy. He doesn't say, oh, it was just a blind man, but he calls him by name. They also assume that Bartimaeus became a prominent leader in the early church, that he went from being completely checked out and, and, and invisible to being this great spiritual leader in the first century church. And I imagine, as I think about it, I imagine that Bart followed Jesus. Like, I don't think he stopped. I think he followed him. Like, he got to Jerusalem. He's like, oh, this is awesome. Like, I'm loving it. I'm getting to know Jesus. And he said, I'm going to keep following. He followed him. He's like, I can't believe they're beating him. I can't believe that they're going to crucify my Savior. And then he followed him to the cross. And as Jesus stretched out his arm, Bartimaeus was weeping and crying with everyone else that was gathered around. I can't believe they crucified my Savior, uh, Jesus, son of David. And I, he, maybe he even said, come on, get off the cross. Like, you don't have to do this. Uh, but he knew that Jesus had to do what he had to do. And it was a long journey. And it was a long journey that very few made. Even Peter didn't make the journey. Like Peter bowed out, threw Jesus under the bus, said, I don't know who this Jesus guy is. And very few took back their life to the extent that Bartimaeus did. But here is what I've learned through my life experiences, that rewarding faith is usually risky that it usually takes risk for us to grow in our faith in ways that we never imagined. It means that we have to give some things up. It means that we have to put some dreams on hold. It means that we have to, we have to do things that we thought we'd never do. Bart took a risk, and it turned out so different than he ever imagined. Like Bart was thinking, if I could just see again, right? Like he's yelling on the curb. He's sitting on the curb yelling, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He just wants to see. And that's all he was thinking, if I could just see again. But God and Jesus are like, oh, I've got something so much more in mind for you than just seeing. You know, for a long time, I was afraid. I was afraid to be a pastor again because everyone told me I couldn't do it. Like I constantly heard those voices in my head, you'll never be a pastor again. You can't do that. Your past disqualifies you. And seven years later, I heard the Lord and said to me, it's time to stand up, Rick. It's time to get up off the curb. It's time to take your life back. And so I did. And I got to be honest with you, it was hard. It was painful. It was scary. But the reality is sometimes taking back your life is hard. Sometimes taking back your life is painful. Sometimes taking back your life is scary. And oftentimes, I don't know if you've experienced this or not, but oftentimes the greatest gifts are on the other side of tears and pain. You just have to keep going, right? And Bartimaeus could have easily sat on the curb. He could have easily been squelched by the crowd. He could have easily heard them say, if you don't shut up, we're going to shut you up. But what did Bartimaeus do? He's like, I'm done. I'm tired with this. Jesus is in the presence. He's in the house. I got to get his attention. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I imagine maybe he even stood up. Maybe he's jumping a little bit. Maybe he's yelling a little louder. I'm sure people in the back are like, would you just stop it? And Bartimaeus just said, no, I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to give up. Jesus is here. He's right in front of me. I can see again if I can just get to Jesus. 
There's a story Teddy Roosevelt shares of a time when a switch flipped in his life where he became unstoppable in his resolve for the rest of his life. And he referred to that day, July 1st of 1898, as the greatest day of his life because it was the day that the wolf rose in his heart. Bartimaeus, that was the day that the wolf rose in his heart. The wolf rose in my heart in 2015 as I got off the curb and I stepped back into the role of being a pastor and I thought to myself, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know what people are going to think. I didn't want to fail, but I jumped in and I took the risk. And listen, taking back your life involves taking the next step. It involves taking the next step, and you don't have to see around the corner. Like, you don't have to see where Jesus is leading you. You don't have to know your final destination. Just take your next step. Wherever God is calling you, be like Bart. Get off the curb and take your next step. All I did was say yes. I didn't know how it was going to turn out, but I knew that God had my back. I knew that God would carry me through this season of my life. And here's the deal. I almost missed out. I almost missed out on God's purpose for my life as I was tempted to stay on the curb because good religious people told me that I wasn't good enough. And that was a lie. It was a lie from the pits of hell, and God has called you, and he's called me to a greater place than what you're living right now. He's called you to stand up, get up off the couch, get up off the curb, stop feeling sorry for yourself, stop listening to the lies, and do what God has called you to do. He loves you more than you could possibly ever imagine. And he's coming for you. And can you hear his voice? He's coming down the road. He's walking. The crowd is gathered around. And he's saying, come here. Get closer to me. Get up off the curb. Come to me. I hope you hear his calling in your life. I hope you hear his voice. You don't have to see, but all you have to do is hear And know that God is with you and he has a plan and a purpose for your life. And so many of us are just like Bart and we're sitting on the curb. But unlike Bart, we're not willing to call back. We're scared. We're letting our past, uh, whatever happened in our past, dictate our future. We're letting our failures become an identity and not just an event. And God is saying, come, come here. I've got something for you. So I want to pray for us this morning. And I especially, I want to pray for those of you that don't yet know Jesus. Right? Like you've been hanging around Warehouse Church. Maybe you've been watching online for a while. And what you hear, it like, it resonates with your heart. You're like, yes. But there's some secret corner of your heart that believes that your past has impeded your future. There's some place in you telling you to sit down and shut up because a holy God can never love a man or a woman with a past like yours. And let me just tell you, that is a lie. God loves you so much. He can't wait to be in relationship with you. You had God at hello, right? Like you had God at hello. And it's time to get off the curb. It's time to rise up. It's time to move in the arms 
of Jesus. So wherever you are, whether you're online or whether you're with us in person, I just want to invite you to pray with me. And here's the deal. If you feel like the Lord is stirring your spirit, and maybe you feel like you want to be known, and you want to be found, and you want to be seen by God, like you want to be loved with a love that will never fail or fade away, I just want to invite you to pray with me today. Let's just bow our heads. Let's just all pray this together. Dear Jesus, I am a mess. God, I've made so many mistakes. I've committed so many sins. And Jesus, there's been some sins that have been committed against me and have broken my heart. So Jesus, I come before you today. I get up off the curb and I come before you wanting your forgiveness and needing your healing, Lord. God, like Bartimaeus, I believe, I believe that you are the only one that can bring my life back. You're the only one that can give my life back. So Jesus, today I put my hope, put my trust in you. God, today I I confess that you are the Lord of Lords and you are the King of Kings. I don't understand how it all works, Jesus. But I believe, I believe that you came to this world. I believe that you lived a perfect life and I believe that you willingly walked up a hill and spread out your arms and you died on the cross to reconcile me to a holy God. So today, Lord, right now, Jesus, I commit myself to your hands. And I say, you are my only hope. You are my only hope, Lord. Here's my heart, Jesus. Help me to rest in your affections. Help me to give the grace take the right next step closer to you. Oh God, forgive me. Heal me. Transform me today. In your name I pray. Amen.